Hi, my name is Chuck Polinick, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... It's almost like a meal, you know, novels are these big, kind of heavy, deep things that you have to hold all of it in your head. Like when I'm on page 340, I need to remember what happened on page two, what everyone was wearing, how they felt, you know, I'm holding it in my head. It's like carrying hot laundry where you're like, oh God, don't drop a sock. Whereas, you know, comics and short stories are more like these little bits of sorbet, these kind of refreshing changes of pace. They're smaller, they're shorter, they're more bite-sized, you don't have to carry them. So um, I've really enjoyed in the last year, especially getting to do more comics work and kind of dip in and dip out and play with different things that, you know, if you'd been, if you'd asked me to like write a book about an alligator cult in Florida, I'd have been like for 400 pages, um, that's really hard, but I can write two comics of X-Files about that super (laughs) fast and with a lot of joy. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com or on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all those great places at The GBB Podcast. I am Jamie Green, your host. You can find me at The Robots. And this week, it's not just me talking to myself. I am joined by... By, uh, by Anthony Cars, who uh, also of The Robots. Yay! Uh, <laughs> Uh, how yeah. have you been? It's been a while since you've been here. It has been a long time. Um, well, you know, it's it's not it's not every day I get out of my my slime covered cave and lurch towards uh, you know the computer. That's kind of disturbing. Uh, well, it is. It is. It, it's a disturbing existence, Jamie. <laughs> so you, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Anthony lives way down south there in Florida, where it's always hot. Um, this week here in the DC area, it's been like mid to high nineties and I want to, I want to basically just shoot myself in the head. So I don't know how you live with this all the time. Lots and lots and lots of air conditioning. Um, but why would you voluntarily do that to yourself? Like, don't you ever (laughs) want to get outside? No, no, because if you go outside, um, you die. So I I don't. (laughs) There's alligators out there. (laughs) Well, there's alligators. Yeah. Oh. And then, you know, the humidity will, will drown you uh, just walking to the mailbox. So. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, do you, we, we get our fair share of humidity up here. And this weekend was, this past weekend was awful. And I made the brilliant decision to be outside both days. And it was just dripping sweat. And I can't imagine having to deal with this like 10 months of the year. Because <laughs> your winter is like 70 degrees, right? It's like beautiful. Oh, it's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, and you yes, wear it, winter it, parkas. It, yeah, totally. It also lasts for um, five days if we're lucky. Yeah. So that's like spring here. We we get about three or four days of spring, and we go straight from winter to summer, and then back again in the fall. So yeah, um, but yeah, but anyway, enough weather talk because that's so fascinating to listen to. <laughs> well, but you know, it it does tie in because there is somebody else I know who has voluntarily moved to Florida to place themselves um, in this perpetual swamp, and that is and uh, our guest to speak. Oh, really now? Yes. <laughs> See, I don't understand you people. <laughs> so yes, uh, what what he is so cleverly alluding to there is our guest this week is Delilah Dawson, um, who also lives down there in the depths of Hades called Florida. Um, if, uh, if you are not familiar, if you're a Star Wars fan, you probably know her from Phasma. Um, but she is so much more than that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Anthony, why don't you, I mean, because you, there's a reason you sat in on this interview this week. Um, oh, yeah. No, as soon as uh, you mentioned you were going to talk to uh, Delilah Dawson, I was I was clamoring. Uh, clamoring. Was he was clamoring. Yeah, yeah there was, I think that's the proper term. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, she is just, um, you know, she's a beast. Uh, she she writes these, these kick-ass heroines. Uh, and just the you know in you know, all genre fiction, uh, she has this whole Weird West offshoot as uh, Lila Bowden, and uh, those are all amazing. I think Wake of Vultures is the first one, if I'm not mistaken. I think um, it is, yeah. 
yeah. And uh, that was actually that was actually my first book of hers that I picked up, um, and I was just enraptured. It was just like this is you know amazing, and uh, you know there's just she brings a a drive and a voice uh, that. I just feel like we need to hear more of, especially, uh, you know, the way things are right now. We need lots of uh, people who are ready to uh, to just say what they mean and kick some ass. One of the things away from her books that I really like about her and I really appreciate about her is if you don't follow her on Twitter, you really should. Um, mm-hmm. She... She just drops these 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 truth bombs, I guess. Do, do the kids still say truth bombs? I don't know if they do or not. <laughs> um, but she just she uses her social media feed, at least Twitter. I don't. I'm not really on Facebook, so I don't. I don't really. I can't speak to that. But she uses Twitter to just drop advice and things that she's learned and um, little nuggets of wisdom about publishing in general, about storytelling, about being a creative. Um, and and if you just scroll through her feed, she's got thread after thread of just these pearls of wisdom. But she also is very real. You know, she's not like an unapproachable author who is like standing up on high saying, I have made it and you all must listen to me now. Um, <laughs> she's very um, grounded and very transparent about her anxieties i guess you would say you know it's oftentimes i'll see her her you know she'll come up on my timeline and it'll just be talking about imposter syndrome or saying like you know today is just an awful day and i can't get anything written or you know these are the kinds of days we need to just push through and be creative despite everything else so it's 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 very honest and she can be very raw um but that's really what i like about her yeah it's really um it's one of the things that i like the most about her and and if you have any allusions at all to the writerly life um yeah she is going to be the one to follow to you know get a glimpse of how she best navigated it um successfully and uh, there's so much uh good advice in there uh but it's also a way to see um you know the flip side of that it's like you know how hard it is to uh to make it in the industry the way the industry is right now right right so we're going to stop chatting we're going to go right into it we do talk um a bit about all of this we talk about you know choosing a writerly life and and pursuing creativity we talk about phasma we talk about her other books. We talk about writing under a pseudonym. We talk about a lot. It was actually a pretty wide-ranging conversation. And she's just delightful. She's just a, uh, just a, a charming, wonderful, witty, amazing person. So you guys are in for a treat. Enjoy. Delilah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's uh, lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Um, so... What interested me most, whenever I, you know, we have a new guest, I, I, I do my homework, I go through and I read up about the person and their career and where they started. What kind of blew my mind was that your first book was only published in 2012, yeah. uh, which was just six short years ago. But in that time, you have like, you've published like more than a dozen books and it's just a ton of short stories and novellas and, and, and across genres. And it just, you've been so prolific in that time. So I guess the obvious question that I'm going toward here is how do you get it all done? Oh, I thought you were going to ask how I cloned myself and what do I do with the body afterwards. Well, that too, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> oh, man. How, how does it... I? So you take all of your anxiety and depression and you roll it up into a, a frenzy of work and then you never have to feel anything. <laughs> it's only partly true. No, um, I, uh, yeah, so I didn't write my first book until 2009. Um, up until then, I was like a visual artist, and um, I worked in art centers and stuff. And so I, I started writing because my youngest kid stopped sleeping, so I stopped sleeping, so my brain broke. And so writing became kind of my my hideaway, and um, where I channeled all of my energy and um, my you know new mother weird feelings. And so writing kind of became this little um, happy island where I did a lot of work and it felt great. And I just have kept doing that ever since. And it still works pretty decently. So, all right. So you started writing in 2009. Your first book came out in 2012. Were you just writing for those three years or were you also writing and submitting and trying to make it? Or were you just honing, you know, basically learning how to write, teaching yourself at that during that time? 
Oh no, I was um, I was like a destined to. Fa- I threw myself at failure as hard as I could. So like Good. I. My first book, it's terrible. It's so bad when I teach classes, I show them the first chapter to be like, look how far you can go. You're already better than this. <laughs> um, yeah, so I queried that first book and got, I think, 57 rejections. Wow. Um, and then toward the end, so that was like, I wrote the book in three months and then I queried it over three months. And toward the end of the rejections, a couple of very kind um, agents kind of reached out with um, feedback saying like, hey, you've got some chops, there's some promise here, but this book is fatally flawed. You cannot fix it. It is predicated on an impossibility. Please write something new, Aquarius. <laughs> well, Aquarius again, and I was like, yeah, I'm doing it. Is that the one that started in the bathroom? It was. It started, well, it started with diarrhea in a Turkish toilet in a <laughs> Greek city, um, a Greek court bathroom, which um, is based on the worst bathroom I've ever been in. And then it continued where she like described herself in the mirror, and then she thought about the last three years and talked about motherhood and what it was like to poop while giving birth, and talked about Starbucks when her daughter blew out her diaper. And you look back and you're like, my life must have been really full of feces. That's the whole first chapter. And then it got, like, it got cute. Like, it had very cute parts, but it was, like, every agent's, like, top ten list of the worst ten things to happen in the first chapter, like, they're there for you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I chunked that book, and I, I started working on my next book, um, which was a middle-grade adventure about a girl who hears rats in the walls. Because, like I said, like, my kids stopped sleeping. I was getting three hours of sleep a night. I started hallucinating that there were rats in the walls talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote, wrote a book about that because that was real and you write what you know right. uh, <laughs> and that book uh, got an agent and it didn't sell um, so that would I guess that would have been 2010 I got the agent we took that book on sub it didn't sell it was um, on an editor's table for like a year we did three um, return and resubmits um, or revised resu- I don't know R&R whatever that stands for mm-hmm, yeah um, and ultimately she didn't buy it so I wrote the third book which was um, the book that became my first uh, series Wicked As They Come which was based on a dream I had about Spike from Buffy. Nice. Oh, awesome. <laughs> you just hit Anthony's sweet spot right there. You totally did. I, <laughs> well, I, I started out writing online by reviewing um, Angel. So. Nice. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was mainlining Buffy and I had this dream about this guy that talked just like Spike but, was, but looked like Jonathan Reese Myers and was wearing like breeches and a hat. And I was like, I want to hang out with you in my head. <laughs> so I did. So, three books, four novellas, and like ten short stories. Fifty-seven. I'm still. I'm sorry. I'm still hung up on fifty-seven rejections. And now, oh. so what? What that could kill? Uh, you know, some a lesser writer, I guess. You know, and that would just totally demoralize somebody who who doesn't have this in their blood. So, what kept you going? I mean, especially as a young writer who had never really done this and didn't really probably know what to expect, like. If you just kept getting rejection after rejection, like what kept you pushing forward? Um, the number one thing was, like I said, my brain was broken. I don't know if I've heard that, like when you carry a boy child, that some of their Y chromosomes cross the blood brain barrier and permanently <laughs> your blood and your brain. I'm a fundamentally different person than I was before I got pregnant with my son. I don't know if it's that or the fact that my brain broke. Um, but whatever happened when I wasn't sleeping, I stopped fearing failure and embarrassment and shame. I think maybe also while I was giving birth in front of 14 interns, two doctors, two doulas, and my, oh my husband. God. And they were all staring at that. Yeah. <laughs> you that, you're like, what else can the world throw at Nothing. me? Nothing. Scary place while these people watched me like, oh my God, what is she doing? What is that? <laughs> um, so no more shame. Don't care. Um, And then combined with the fact that I realized that I had this very long um, list of uh, agents I can query and Excel. And so I would send out, like I started out in batches of uh, five. So I'd send out like five queries. And if they all got auto-rejected or whatever, I was like, okay, my query sucks. So I'd start from the bottom and rebuild. If I was getting, um, you know, some interest and people wanted to read more, I was like, okay, my query's good. If they didn't like the first 10 pages and I started getting auto-rejects on that, I was like, okay, the first 10 pages suck. Mm. So it's like this constant massaging. Um, nothing was ever precious. Nothing was ever my baby. And every time I got a rejection, I filed it away into a folder that was hidden in my desktop, so I never had to see them. And then I immediately sent out the next query. 
So it's like shooting arrows. Like you miss the target, whatever, you pull out another arrow and you shoot again. Um, there is an endless amount of arrows. You have endless books in you. You can query a million books. Like no one can, you can't query the same agent with the same book, but you can hit a new agent with a new book query every three or four months. Right. You know, until you hit it. So once I realized that there was this, this inexhaustible supply, suddenly the rejections weren't, you know, someone putting their boot in my face and telling me I was worthless. They were just an arrow slightly missing the target and going, oh, okay, well, I'm probably aiming a little bit left. I need to recalibrate. Yeah. Um, I think it might also help. I read a lot of, um, like, a lot of authors, uh, you know, bios are like, oh, that I've been writing since I could handle a pen. It's my live stream. This wasn't my live stream. Yeah. I wrote poetry and stuff. I, I did my AP English. I was pretty good, but like this was never a thing I thought I could do. So there was no um, ego attached to it. Like I never felt like I could be a writer or should. I thought novelists were like nuns. Like they knew from a young age how special they were, and I never had that. So like, what did I have to lose? So do, I mean, obviously that took the pressure off. I guess. I mean, so do you think that that sort of made it easier on you? You'd be like, well. If this works, great. If it doesn't, I don't care. Says I don't want to do it anyway. You know, is it? What, yeah. Did you have that kind of mindset? Hundred percent. I was. I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, so you know, the, my husband was supporting us at the time. We've switched on and off throughout the years. So, like while he was getting his graduate degree, I supported us, and then when I had the babies, he supported us. So we've had this nice switch. So I didn't have to worry too much. Um, I wasn't the breadwinner. But yeah, I I found that not being precious, that kind of removing your I don't want to say removing your heart because I don't think you can be a writer if you don't put your heart into your words. Um, but, you know, it's like if someone, okay, I learned this at a, um, a writing group that I went to where you'd show up every week and they would give you a random topic in 15 minutes to write and you'd have to write it down. Mm -hmm. And so you had to choose super fast. You couldn't spend 15 minutes being like, what would be the very best story? What's the perfect story for this? Like you had to start writing or you couldn't get anything done. And so you start realizing after you've done this for a couple of months, like, there's no one story. There's no perfect story. There's no, oh my God, this is the golden idea that has been sent from the muse to my brain by aliens who built the pyramids. You're just like, I can take any piece of garbage and turn it into a story. <laughs> you know, it's all about what you do with it. So I've even had this where, you know, I'll, I'll be pitching a book or pitching a story or pitching a comic. And I've realized that I turn pitches around in a day or two. Um, and that if you wait too much longer than that, if you're like, oh, I have, I need a month to come up with pitches, you're going to drive yourself nuts being like this isn't good enough it's got to be crazy it's got to be the most best thing that's ever and it's like nobody can work like that you just want to be like nimble and quick and being like yeah whatever yeah you know spike in a forest is, is that an uncommon approach i guess i mean i'm sure you've talked to you you talk to other authors all the time is that uncommon that ability to to just turn something around real fast and not be not stay connected to it well, I think you can tell the people who do because they're very prolific writers. Like my buddy Chuck Wendig, I think, kind of works a lot similarly to me. Like, we can come up with anything. We can riff on anything super fast. When Kevin Hearn and I came up with Kill the Farm Boy, it was like a joke. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, we're not thinking, you know, hey, this might be the biggest book of our careers. Let's make it a big deal. We're like, oh, my God, elf fart joke. <laughs> and, you know, that hits that hits the, the – so, yeah, I think um, – I think that the, the more loose you can become and the more the more nimble, the more it frees you up for creativity and, and the more you stop trying to put the pressure on yourself to be perfect because uh, you can't get anything done if you're trying to be perfect. Aside from, uh, I guess, cloning yourself um, and hiding the bodies, do you have a daily routine? I, I, are you one of those people who gets up before dawn and, and doesn't move? <laughs> No, if I get up before dawn, I, I like put the mask back on, turn on Bob's Burgers, and go right back to sleep. <laughs> um, when my kids were really, really young, um, and they still, you know, when I was still kind of, before I had a real busy career, and it was just kind of like maybe one book or whatever, I would stay up until two in the morning working, because it was the only time that no one was like tugging on me. Mm. Um, but these days, they're both in school, so it's like, you know, I drop them off at school, and then I come home, and I have my breakfast, and my, I can't drink coffee anymore, so I drink, like, roasted cocoa beans, like a weirdo. <laughs> um, I have my drink, and then I, I get to work. Um, I'd always done the creative work as soon as I could. Like, if I had to first draft, I wanted to do that while I was fresh and, you know, fake caffeinated and, like, ready. Um, so I would do that and then save kind of the more administrative stuff or the emails for the afternoon, but I recently listen to the Tim Ferriss's podcast and they were talking about the best use of creativity and they said you're better at analytical stuff in the morning mm. and you're better saving your creativity for the afternoon and evening so I've switched it around and it's so much easier really <laughs> now, like, I was, um, trying to force the little ship into the bottle um, 
So yeah, now I do. If I have to do um, spreadsheets or, or mathing or editing, I'm so much sharper in the morning. And then in the afternoon, once that's done, I can, you know, have a couple sips of bourbon and get into the more creative first drafting and, and not have quite so much pressure on it. Yeah. But I have so many things I have to do. It's really hard. Like, I don't just write books at this point in time. I have you know, a book to edit and a comic to break down and another comic to edit and a pitch coming in. And like, there's so much stuff. I, I don't think I could have um, a regular schedule other than, you know, come home and work. Do you find, um, I guess, what's the word? Um, does that get your creativity moving even more, that diversity of, of projects that you have all at once? Or do you find that if you've, you know, you're, you're maybe a little bit better with just one project at a time that you can focus on? Well, I mean, whichever project I'm on, I, I focus on, um, I can give it pretty much my, like, you know, it's like, I wouldn't, you know, edit a book for three pages and then write a comic for four pages. And then you know, it's, I, I stick with the one thing. And, you know, you have to yeah. kind of ride one horse to the finish line before you get on the other horse. Um, yeah. But no, it's it's very, it's very neat on the, the cross pollination. And it's almost like a meal, you know, novels are these big, kind of heavy, deep things that you have to hold all of it in your head. Like when I'm on page... 340, I need to remember what happened on page two, what everyone was wearing, how they felt. You know, I'm holding it in my head. It's like carrying hot laundry where you're like, oh, God, don't drop a sock. Um, whereas, you know, comics and short stories are more like these little bits of sorbet, these kind of refreshing changes of pace. They're smaller, they're shorter, they're more bite-sized. You don't have to carry them. So um, I really enjoyed in the last year especially getting to do more comics work and kind of dip in and dip out and play with different things that, you know, if you'd been, if you'd asked me to like write a book about an alligator cult in Florida, I'd have been like for 400 pages. Um, that's really hard, but I can write two comics of X-Files about that super <laughs> fast and with a lot of joy. Definitely. So have, um, I have, you've, you've had a lot of success, um, you know, doing your stuff and also other people's stuff, you know, playing in like different universes um, that you got to make some you got to just borrow or play in, um, which is easier. Um, I, easy doesn't really matter so much. Like I don't look at things in terms of what'll be easy or difficult because, you know, it, in this business, it all depends on more, you know, where you are in your creative cycle and what you had for breakfast and, you know, who's homesick as far as what's easy or hard. You know, when the, when the work comes to you, it comes to you. And when the work has a deadline, it doesn't matter how easy or hard it is. Um, but I will say I have turned down some IP projects because they weren't worlds that I really loved or that I thought I had the potential to really do them justice. Um, I tend to only work in uh, properties that I really love, that I have a background for, that I can see clearly in my head, that I feel like those characters, I know them as well as characters that, you know, I wrote myself. Mm. So, you know, it's, I don't think it's so much a, a case of ease as if I really love something. It's, you know, you can feel it when somebody asks you to do something, you can kind of feel it in your chest, that little, oh my God, yes, I want to do that versus the, oh God, that sounds like work. <laughs> Um, so, you know, like getting to do Adventure Time, Labyrinth, X-Files, Star Wars, um, I've got some Rick and Morty coming up, like all of that, as soon as I heard it, I perked up like, oh my gosh, yes, please, I want to do that, even if it hurts, even if I have to stay up until two in the morning, I want to be a part of that, versus the things that I've turned down, um, while they might have been lucrative, I think that they wouldn't have been, you know, as from the heart, and I guess that it's not as easy if you have to go watch, you know, six seasons of a TV show just to know what's going on, you know, maybe not, that's not the TV show for you to be writing, you know, in that property of. Yeah. So um, one thing uh, you mentioned Star Wars and you know, I absolutely love, um, you know, Phasma and um, uh, Perfect Weapon. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me when I started reading um, your, your Star Wars stuff was that it had an, just this undeniable you-ness to it. <laughs> <laughs> Where you know, there's so much. You know, I'm I'm a child of the '80s, and I look back at some of the science fiction that I grew up on, and it's just like it's just this testosterone laden crap. Um, we love and, it. it. Definitely was not aware of its own faults. I watched Kroll recently and was like, "There's only one lady in this, and she's trapped in a spider web for Christ's sake." Right? Exactly. It's yeah. You look back and you're like, "Oh my God!" It's like, was did anybody have agency in any of these things other than you know the the young toe headed hero? Huh. Um, but so I think that you've done this this amazing job of bringing you know 
more of you know, a more diverse voice, a more you know gender aware voice. Um, so I, I just you know it's it's something that yeah you know, I, I recognize it and I'm like I struggle to you know to find that you know in in my own writing and things like that. And I was wondering you know what advice do you have for somebody trying to uh, just kind of enlighten themselves you know in their fiction. Um, you know, it's, I, I have a, a thread on Twitter that's gone the rounds about how to write IP that, you know, people don't want to know how to write in Star Wars. And I'm like, okay, the first step is you have to have five to 10 years of a really dependable career with a good reputation and you have to have a voice. Um, you know, that part of getting to write these things, I think, is that you've developed, you know, your, your voice and kind of your, your body of work such that when, you know, IP projects like Star Wars are looking for someone to write something, they're not just looking for someone who loves the property and someone who can write because there are so many people. I mean, that, that Venn diagram is huge. There's so many talented people and so many people who love Star Wars, but um, also a kind of a voice and a bailiwick maybe that matches what they're looking for. Um, so, you know, I don't think I would have been the person to write Bloodline. I know I wasn't the person to write Aftermath. I don't even know how Chuck kept up with all that. Um, but I feel like Phasma, I was the person to write it. And if anybody else would have written it, I would have hated them forever. <laughs> you know, violent women struggling is kind of my jam. Um, and, you know, giving them voice, letting them be violent and unapologetically rude and, and you know, kick butt um, is what I do. So it was really neat to, to get matched to Phasma that way and for them to have seen that in my work. Um, I feel like, you know, as you're a writer that gets obsessed with, with book ideas, it takes so much obsession to write a book. Um, and so much of it has to do with who you are, where you are right now, how you connect kind of the cultural zeitgeist and what's going on in the book. Uh, I think it's really hard to write a book that's not political because mm. the things you choose to say or not say, you know, how people react in your books are all related to, you know, the the view you take of the world. So I feel like as you build up a body of work, you start to maybe see themes or, or feelings or certain things that pop up in your work again and again um, that kind of starts to become that, that voice of yours and the, the things that you have to say to the world. Um, so, you know, I think writing a lot is, is the big key to that. You know, it's Stephen King says you have to write a million words before you know what you're doing, um, which goes with Macklemore's 10,000 hours, uh, that sort of thing. And reading a lot and seeing what resonates with you, it's a real final touch between, wow, that book really made me feel, and oh my God, stop preaching at me. I know I'm on your side. God. <laughs> Which is really easy to fall into when you feel very strongly. Um, so reading and writing a lot, um, I think, is, is, is the key to that. And, and seeing also where it's, it's well done. You know, when you read certain Star Wars books, they all have a different flavor. They don't all read like they're written by the same person. Some of them are more for, you know, you read, I guess, Catalyst, and you can tell, you know, that's for someone who's really into certain aspects of, of you know, of science and, and the imperial side, and, and, you know, whereas Bloodline is, you know, politics and, and a woman's struggle, and then Phasma is kind of more violent Mad Max, and, um, you know, every, every Star Wars book has a, a different flavor, and I feel like they're good at matching the people to that, but that also means that you can't guess what they're going to need next. You just have to be the best you you can be and hope it matches up one day. I, I wanted to follow up on that because it seems, with Star Wars especially, no knock on the old canon, well, I guess what, legends, whatever, um, it felt like a lot of those books were stories stories that they just needed to tell and it almost didn't matter who the author was they just they had a story and they they just put an author on it whereas now with the new new canon the new books it feels like what you're saying every book almost has this very distinctive voice you know like the claudia gray book is very different from your book which is very different from a daniel jose older book which is very different from a chuck wendig book so when you guys are put on a book it's for the reason that they have the story they want told, but also because of the unique perspective that you're going to bring to that story. How much, how much of, of that do they, do they handhold you through? Or do they just say, here's what we need you to write. We know you can do it because we hired you specifically. Go to it. Like how much freedom did you have versus how much working with story group to get what they needed? Um, a lot more freedom than I think most people think. Um, 
it's definitely a collaborative process and it's a very supportive process. You know, it's not, it's not something where you feel constrained or like they're cutting you out of the book or like, you know, you're just writing to a script. They don't bring you an outline and say, no, write this peasant. Like it doesn't, <laughs> Pablo Hidalgo does not show up with like a lightsaber and smack you. It's, it doesn't happen that way. Um, yeah, no, it's very collaborative from the start. Like they, they have, you know, a, a hook or a pitch that, that encompasses the, the book. They have some ideas and there's a lot of back and forth meetings, phone calls, you know, synopses gets banded back to back and forth and people have comments to weigh in. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely not, they don't walk in to, um, you know, that first meeting saying the book starts here, it ends here. Here are the major points. They walk in saying, here is the feeling that we are looking for. Here is how it must serve Star Wars. Um, here's what we think you'd be great at. What do you think? And then you get to, you know, go in there. I'm um, with uh, the perfect weapon. All I had was like a Lady James Bond in space. Yeah. <laughs> nice. You know, and then we had to, you know, build from there. And I said, well, what else do I need to know? Because that was way before The Force Awakens came out. And they're like, oh, just Google The Force Awakens spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> like, I could do that. <laughs> we have reference materials. And they were like, we don't. The EU is dead. Pick something. Nice. So, you know, it's all... That story, though, I mean, you were one of the first, if not the first, people to explore one of these ancillary characters from the new films, you know? I mean, like, the the old EU, you know, the legends, went into painful detail with every minor character who ever had a <laughs> half second of screen time. Um, but Bazine was the first character to sort of get a backstory but not really get any screen time um as a star wars fan did you the characters i specialize in (laughs) (laughs) and we'll get to that in a second but (laughs) did you did you i mean as a star wars fan did you feel any sort of extra pressure because of that I, I did a little bit, um, and my, my first um, attempts at an, at an outline, you know, because I'll, I'll pitch three or four story ideas. I mean, I was digging deep into, like, the RPG game I used to play. I had stuff from KOTOR on there. I was like, oh, the Death of Mary Night Sisters, and she's going to write a Rancor, and they're like, go back a bit. <laughs> what if you just told the story, you know, and it was, it was I kind of had to realign with, instead of digging back into the past, instead of, like, digging a hole for diamonds, what if you, you know... <laughs> moved forward and yeah. looked for something new. Um, so it was it was very cool. But I still remember the first time where I was like, okay, this is happening on Jakku. And they were like, forget Jakku. Nothing happens on Jakku. And I'm like, well, there's a Lego set that says Jakku. And they were like, yes. And nothing happens there. Literally pick something else. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I'm holding my, my you know, Star Wars role-playing game, like 1980, you know, whatever 1900s book I'm holding with my outer rim. And I'm like, tell me a planet to use. Make up your own. Now, you guys trust me to make up a planet? And they were like, cool. and I was like, I'm a god. <laughs> so then I spent a whole day just walking around muttering to myself, trying to figure out like a really great planet name. Yeah. Which... I mean, which you've got to have like there's got to be pride with that right i had been i talked to ben blacker and he talked about that how blacker and ben acker they're great guys they're amazing but blacker was talking about how he they felt like they did they felt like gods because they were just naming entire races and they named they named characters and races they they named an entire religion after their friend you know i mean so no we all name stuff after our friends yeah (laughs) i mean you you must feel like i am the puppet master well and also the sense of like i'm just gonna slip this in the book and maybe nobody will notice it yeah or the sand reference in phasma like please let me keep it i love that i love that reference so much uh, well, I mean, they've got, a, I mean, they've got a, like Story Group loves Star Wars more as much more than anybody. Like they love it so much, and they have like the same feelings we have. They are not enemies. They are they are so celebratory and they're so supportive. Yeah, I mean, and they such like comment arguments in the comments of a document that the whole document will crash in Word. <laughs> do you? Did you? Do you have? I guess this is really only pertinent to Star Wars, but when you when you write the stories is there something like i'm gonna sneak this by story group and pablo will never know i don't think you can sneak anything <laughs> by Pablo. i mean i'm sure i might have snuck i think i might have snuck a hamilton reference into phasma <laughs> um, 
I killed my husband. I made Chuck into like a dying demigod Gand. Um, I, I snuck Brooke Bolander in as, as an Imperial officer. So, you know, like you can do these things, but it's like this understood winking. Like you're kind of yeah. allowed to do that if it doesn't stand out too much. You can't be, you know, like, um, you know, Quill Wheaton, but with two L's. Like you, it's right. got to be. <laughs> gonna be sneaky but like our friend kevin hearn is is hearn kaveen in the star wars world like yeah well i mean like, the, the, the lucasfilm denies that the holiday special ever existed like they won't even talk about it but alex bracken in her a new hope um uh adaptation put chewbacca's wife in there and she uh, i was talking to her and she was like i was shocked that they let that stay because she she thought for sure that was gonna get cut I think this has a lot to do with um, what's open and closed, allowed, not allowed, what pings them at the time. Like, you never know what's, I mean, there's, I think there was something where I was like, you can't use this ship. And I'm like, who, who, okay, tell me a different ship. I'm not like wedded to this ship. I just opened my book and closed my eyes and pointed. (laughs) Uh, uh, If if I could, if I could nerd out like really specifically for a second, one of this, you mentioned ships, and you mentioned being able to to do things, you know, and just pitch it. Um, whose idea was it? And this is a spoiler for anybody who hasn't read Phasma. Um, whose idea was it for Phasma's armor to be Palpatine's? You know, from Palpatine's craft, because I think it's just such this awesome, like, subtle dig at. Yeah. You know everything that the first order stands for. It's like, oh, I'm I'm wearing this treasured artifact around you people, and you don't even know. Yeah, no, I mean that came from the uh, the Force Awakens visual dictionary. It's just one of those little, you know, I, I'm guessing probably Pablo does a lot of the writing on those. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, it was it was more. I got the visual dictionary because I'm mining everything at that point for every little, you know, and I have the the book with the cross sections of like the. Um, yeah. You know the the battle cruisers, so I could like you know figure out how Cardinal could go up and down and where he had to go. So I, I have all the reference books and um, whatever was there. You know, you wonder if maybe I think a lot of it's just like throwaway stuff where they're like, oh god, we have to say something about this. What would be cool? You know, I don't think that there's some like long deep Illuminati desire to you know blow minds. I think you're just like, what do we know of that's silver? <laughs> <laughs> Silver does not exist in this universe except in this one place. But it's fun to play. Like it, well, the fun part was like figuring out how it, you know, how she turned it into armor. That part I really enjoyed. Yeah, that was I, I loved that entire sequence. So I have to do it because you mentioned that they, they are the kind of characters you specialize in. After writing this amazing book that dives into her backstory and just fleshes her out and and gives her this incredible depth and and realism you must have gone into the last jedi like yes finally we get to see her on screen oh oh no my friend you have order backwards before this book got written they took me out to the lucasfilm uh campus in the san francisco presidio and gave me the last jedi script Ah. And so I read the script before we'd even finalized. So you knew. I do. Yeah, I kept for 13 months. I kept it a secret that I w- I'd read the script. How hard, wow. How hard was that? It was really hard. I had to hide my notes from my husband because I knew he would like not be able. He'd be like a kid at Christmas. He would not be able to not look. I didn't tell my kids. I didn't tell people like at, at cons or at Twitter because God only knows my missions do not need that. <laughs> um, and I didn't tell the world about Porgs, which I feel like that was a great sacrifice on my part. There's very good, it was incredibly strong of you. I don't think that I would have been that strong. <laughs> you, you've made up for it since then. Oh yeah. Or, at least with Porgs. Very pro-Porg, yes. <laughs> okay, so then, knowing the role that she had and... Um, that she needed to have that story told. I, I'm assuming then that was the catalyst, haha, for you going in to really give her the depth that she demanded. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the general idea was we wanted people to understand exactly why she let down the shields on Starkiller Base, you know, because mm-hmm. back then there was all that, oh, she's a coward. She's going to, she's secretly part of the resistance. And we're like, no, dude, she's a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, was, it was to make people understand like it, she didn't do it because she was weak or because she was scared or because she's secretly a good guy like we wanted people to know exactly who she was 
um, and give a little bit of insight into what it was like for a normal person in the first order, what a good person in the first order would actually look like. Because you know they're in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these are the things that we were we were you know wanted to be to be shown, and you know nobody's told me what happens in three, but I mean, dude, come on. After all we know about her, how could she be dead? So, right. knock on wood that they have come to the same conclusion that I personally have. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, I worry that, you know, that it's going to be the trope now. Like she's going to like come on to screen and you're going to be like, yes. And then like 30 seconds later, you're like, oh man. <laughs> you're going like, to like just show up and somebody's going to like Boba Fett her into a Sarlacc. She's gonna- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's going to be the, the airlock door is going to be right there. You know? <laughs> oh God. Now I can see it. They're, they're going to put a Sarlacc in episode nine just for that purpose only. <laughs> and then finally she can be as beloved as Boba Fett no it was the sad thing for me was that when the last Jedi um, when the toys came out there was like no Phasma they were just like she was the biggest seller of the Force Awakens toys and then for the last Jedi they were like eh yeah. I know I actually in preparation for this I went and, and <laughs> grabbed out, out of storage I grabbed my uh, my Phasma uh, figure <laughs> that's the kind of research Anthony does he, he throws then, himself yeah. really into it <laughs> We've mentioned a few times social media and Twitter, and you are fairly active on Twitter, and you, more often than not, you use it as a tool to um, give advice to young writers or or to sort of pull back the curtain and tell people what the industry is like. Yeah. As a writer or as a young writer, if you think about a young writer starting now, do you think that social media primarily helps or hinders uh, writers? I mean, is it... Is it a crutch? Is it a time waste? Or is it is it actually a source of being able to connect with other people and, and learn? Um, I mean, it, it, I think it depends on what a person needs most and what they're doing to get it. And if they're using it to level up or if they're using it as justified procrastination. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first, like I said, I didn't write a book till 2009. And um, around that time is when I found Twitter. And I started kind of connecting with other people who were writing and following agents and editors. And I mean, like, that's when I started following Chuck Wending. Neither of us even had an agent at that point. We weren't published, but, you know, we would talk online. Um, So that's how I started kind of connecting people, finding people, and listening to other writers and, you know, seeing what books they recommended or what they had to say. So, like, it was invaluable to me in going from, you know, never having written a book, no MFA, no nothing about publishing, no one in publishing, you know, nursing a baby on my couch in Atlanta to like having a book on the shelf in two years was using social media to meet other people, um, to level up, to find resources, to vet agents before I uh, queried them, that sort of thing. So like it was really valuable to me. Um, And I feel like a lot of people were very kind to me and answered my questions or pointed me in the right direction. So um, what I do on social media these days definitely feels like, uh, you know, paying it forward is is something that I owe the Twitter world um, because people helped me. I mean, I'll answer any ungoogleable question on Twitter. Like if you ask me how to get an agent, you know, if if I'm in a good mood, I'll send you the link to my post on how to get an agent. But, you know, there's a lot of questions that you have that you're like, I don't know how to Google this. I don't know who to ask this. And I just feel so hopeless and helpless and alone and like I want to be there if I can answer that question for someone because at some point a lot of people answered those questions for me yeah um I, I'm fascinated by writers who use pseudonyms uh, uh. <laughs> it, 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 can you share why you originally went that route was it really just for different genres you wanted to keep those aspects of your life separate or was there another reason um, well, so before then, um, my Blood series um, that started with Wicked As They Come, uh, that was with Pocket, which is part of Simon & Schuster. Uh, my young adult gothic horror, Servants of the Storm, was with uh, Simon Pulse, part of Simon & Schuster. My Hit & Strike series was with Simon Pulse, part of Simon & Schuster. My Carney Punk story was with Gallery, part of Simon & Schuster. Everything I had up until that moment um, was Simon & Schuster. They were my only publisher. Um, so when I wrote Wake of Vultures and it got bought by Orbit, it was a new genre. It was pretty dark. You know, everything I'd written until then was romance or YA. Um, so it was a new genre, new publisher, darker and grittier than everything else. And, um, 
So they asked me if I would be willing to do a pseudonym. And because I'd known from the start I was going to write in a ton of different genres, I just always assumed eventually I would either have a pseudonym because a publisher wanted it or because my career was at a standstill and we needed to restart, mm-hmm. um, which is really common. Um, Rachel Kane does a great talk on all the pseudonyms she's been through. And, you know, Stephen King did it. Basically, you use pseudonyms until something hits big. And then you're like, well, that's my name. <laughs> Uh, so we, we kind of rebooted the series as Lila Bowen, which is Lila. So if you call it, I will answer because it sounds like Delilah. Mm-hmm. And Bowen is kind of an old family name that sounded kind of rough and tumble Western. So it seemed to go nicely with it. Um, but I don't, I guess I didn't have any, I always knew I'd have one. I'd need a pseudonym. I'd already picked one out. I actually wanted to make a joke of it. And I wanted to write under the name Dick Manley. <laughs> <laughs> like the most masculine name I could think of. And I wanted that, I wanted that boost from being masculine. And they were like, no. And I was like, okay, but what if I had like a fedora? <laughs> I have a clock shadow. And they were like, what about just no? So I tried. <laughs> I mean, was there, or I I don't know if is there, it shouldn't be a present tense question, but was there a fear at any point that, you know, you're going to, you've already published under your name or under one name, and now you're going to start over with a different name. I'm going to lose the audience that I built up. Or or what if those early books really hit big in a year from now? And then what happens? Because now I'm writing under a different name. Well, it's always been an open secret. They never wanted me to, it wasn't like a, a J.K. Rowling, Robert Gilbraith thing. It was yeah. always like, oh, sure, you know, we're going to benefit from the, the debut writer boost and get your name out of it under a different name. But they were never like, you know, your name is Lila. Here's your new ID. Here's your passport. <laughs> like, it was never like that. They they were very, you know, oh, it's an open secret. You know, tell your Twitter. Tell. So it's basically like they, they wanted the best of both worlds. And yeah. I was fine with that. So. Um, I just made sure that all my social media all say Lila Bowen. So if you, you know, Google that, it pops up and yeah. it, it was on the website. So I think it would have been really challenging. I don't I don't think that a secret pseudonym would have been nearly as useful because I had my existent fan base. Um, but, you know, it's also one of those things where after the first book comes out in hardcover and you see how things go, you know, whether it's going to be more hardcover or paperback or this or that, you can always say, you know, Delilah S. Dawson writing as Lila Bowen, mm-hmm. you know, New York Times bestselling author Delilah. You know, you can add you can add these little various pings to things as things sort out. So it wasn't like a oh dear God, they'll never find me again. It's like I'm right here. I just added an extra line to my Twitter bio. It'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say, uh, Wake of Vultures um, is a, the first book of yours that I, I wanted to. I, I yelled when I finished. It. <laughs> <laughs> I was like. Okay, I've had cliffhangers, but not literal cliffhangers before. I'm like, oh, what are you doing to me? Oh, I love tropes. <laughs> yeah, my agent, she didn't quite get it. It wasn't really her jam. She's like, it reads kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I was like, I know. And she was like, no, no, I'm, this is, these are problems. It's like an episodic monster hunt. And I was like, I know. And she was like, not taking this criticism well. <laughs> it's like a cliffhanger. And I was like, I know, I did that on purpose because that's how old-fashioned pulpy westerns finished. Yes, yes. Oh, God, yeah. It's 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 such a fun genre. And I, I love, um, actually, your, uh, that series was one of my first introductions to the kind of weird West genre uh, in, in a big way. Um, and I just, I love it. It's such a great mashup. Yeah, there's, um, I guess I read Laura Ann Gilman and Elizabeth Baer and Molly Tanzer and Kelly Sue DeConnick's Pretty Deadly. Like, there's some cool stuff out there. And, like, Westworld came out, and I'm like, oh, come on, reinvigorate this. Yes. I've got terrible people in the Wild West doing awful things. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask about genre for a second. Um, And I apologize if this opens a can of worms. But for you... What is the difference between YA and quote-unquote adult fiction? Um, that would be the shelf they put it on at Barnes yeah. & Noble. Okay. So uh, <laughs> let me let me just back up for a second if you wanted to expound on that. I, so I'm reading a book right now. It's a, it's a new release, brand new author. Very, very good. I'm really loving it. I would have totally categorized this as YA for a number of different reasons. But the author on Twitter is adamant that it's an adult book. And, you know, she's she's tweeted back and left and right. I mean, no disrespect to YA, but this was a book that it's, it's <laughs> not for, it's not for younger kids. It's not for teenagers. It's not, I know my readers. It's adult. It's adult. It's adult. 
do those labels even make sense anymore? Because, I mean, so many YA books I read, and I don't care that it's not intended for me as an audience, you know? It's, I mean, this, I, I feel like um, a thing I had to learn very early on in my career with genre is that um, if I think about genre while I'm writing, I'm not writing my best book. Um, in the same way that if you're writing to a trend, you're not writing your best book. If you're writing to please someone else or to grab some market share, it's not going to be the best book you can write. I, I really deeply believe that if you if you write the book that you're really passionate about, um, your agent and editor can very easily find a shelf to put it on and find a, a way to sell it. But that's not the author's job to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote Wicked Vultures as YA and it's sold as adult. And I was like, okay. Yeah. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> Wherever you want to put it, as long as you publish it, you know, that's your business. Yeah. Um, Voice on there seems to be a, a really a high a high amount of blood in YA. Well, it's, um, yeah. I mean, it, the books that made YA popular were what, like Twilight, The mm. Hunger Games, Divergent. Yeah. Like, these are heavily violent books. Yeah. Um, which I mean is, is okay. Like I, I read these books as an adult. I would have loved them as, as a young adult, but, um, I feel like these days YA outside of being the shelf it's on or, you know, the, the, the person selling it at the bookstore, a lot of it has to do with, uh, how seriously the writer takes themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's like the difference between literary fiction and science fiction is what a literary fi- literary fiction writer gets to put out a book every four years, and a science fiction writer has to do a book every year. <laughs> um, and then you know the the cover is in more muted tones of teal. Like I don't I don't know what the difference is here. Cause, like speculative fiction can be very literary, um, but it just all depends on how your your publisher decides to sell it and and to sell you. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna let you go. But I want to ask one final question. If you were a candy, what would you be? A candy? Yeah. If, if, you, had, if, if you had to be like a candy bar or a candy, what would you be? I'm just hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, one time for my birthday, my friend gave me what I thought was a lollipop, and I was super disappointed, and I opened it, and it was a... Uh, chocolate in the shape of a sugar skull and the chocolate was dark chocolate infused with um like lava salt and chili pepper that contained uh, sea salt butter caramel oh my god oh wow so much better than a lollipop that worked for me a lot <laughs> a little salty little sweet little surprising little spicy it's a skull eat it <laughs> i love it i don't think there would have been fantastic a, that's such it a was perfect answer it was a Vosges Halloween candy because I, I worked for Cool Mom Picks at the time, and after I ate it, I was like, "Oh my god, you guys! I have to cover this for Cool Mom Picks. It's so good." <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect answer. And now I really want to go find one and, and have one. So yeah, I'm going to go googling for this afterwards. Delilah, thank you so much for your time. This has just been an amazing conversation. Thank That's- y'all. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. So, Anthony, I know when Phasma first came out, you were just singing its praises to anybody who would listen. Um, I I would not shut up. And, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm still disappointed that you all didn't just go out and buy the book instantly uh, to make me shut up. And so I, I got louder. Shutting up is not one of your virtues. No. Uh, you, it's, it's very hard, to be fair, to get you to stop talking about anything. Um, <laughs> but when something is sort of... The bee in your bonnet, I guess, but yeah. in a good way. Um, yeah, so Phasma, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, Captain Phasma. <laughs> tiny Ozark cousin, Phasma. <laughs> yeah, that Captain Phasma sure is a treat. Um, she, that book, uh, I can't imagine writing a book like that because they don't get a lot of time. And I, um, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I know she said this elsewhere, is that they don't have a lot of time to write these books. No. You know, like a lot of the, the standalone novels that come out, I, maybe Chuck Wendig had quite a bit longer to write because it was three and he had a much right. larger story to tell. But, you know, like uh, Daniel Jose Older with, with the solo book and, and, and uh, like Claudia Gray with the ones that she's written... Mm-hmm. And, and Delilah with Phasma, they've 
they've only got like a couple months really like two three months to write the book and for a novel that's ridiculous it is it is (laughs) i mean you've written a novel like i mean you've written can you imagine sitting down like with a star wars property here's your character you know like you're gonna write a yoda book three months i want to i want the final thing go uh no no i can't i i could probably have you know i i couple of pages about Yoda's eating habits and why he prefers... I would totally read that book. (laughs) Like, why he loves hot dogs so much. Versus uh, pre-pressed MREs, you know? (laughs) Because he was really all about that hot dog out of Luke's little, like, ration pack. Like, like, what's up with hot dogs, Yoda? Like, really? Come on. I I think it's it's more stick-based food items. And, And why are we putting hot dogs in space rations to begin with? Like, why did Luke even have one? You know, I, I think that that's something that, like, the previous X-Wing pilot just left behind because it looked pretty moldy. Gross. So he's just yeah. eating, like, some dead pilot's leftovers? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, that's like, yeah, it's like, maybe it's like a Mon Calamari finger or something, you know? <gasps> they, they got chopped off and left in there. See, we got a story. There you go! See, you there can totally go. write this in two or three months now. Yeah, easy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but in all uh, seriousness, um, I don't know how they do it. And you know, I've talked to enough authors um, that have had these kind of time pressures put on them. It's it's different than when you're writing your own book, you know, mm-hmm. and you still have publishing deadlines, and you still, if, especially if you've sold it already, and you know, and you have a deadline that you have to deliver a manuscript by. But it's usually a lot. Well, I don't know a lot, but it's usually at least a little bit longer than what we've been hearing from these Star Wars authors, that they just had oh, these incredibly fast turnarounds. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that impressed me the most about Phasma and why I wouldn't shut up about it mm. um, was that it was one of those books where I was actively mad when I didn't get to see more of the character that Delilah created yeah. on screen. I'm like, like, oh my God, she did such a good job of just, you know, you had you know 10 seconds of screen time. Yep. And... Here's this character that I absolutely love now, and uh, you know I was you know, I didn't know what to expect going in, um, and I came out of it, you know, still it's nothing that I ever would have thought um, would have been in the book, mm-hmm. and I loved it all the same. Yeah, it was like this is a completely different direction than I would have ever thought, and I'm so happy that I got to go there. Yeah, I do have to say, I mean, with respect to the Last Jedi. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I am not one of those crazy, ignorant, stupid fans who want to remake it and think that it's horribly broken. <laughs> I, my my only real complaint, or I guess my biggest complaint, though, would be Phasma's role. You know, I mean, if you're going to bring her back and not really explain in the movie how she didn't die and why she's there, yeah, give her a, a more substantial role instead of just a cameo when and maybe she got killed again you know like yeah. we don't even know it's just she just showed up and and kind of was a wasted character in both films you know she is very yeah. much the darth maul and boba fett of these films where they look cool and fans love them but really that's yeah. all we're gonna get she's had a much more she's had a richer fictional life than mm-hmm. um than a movie life yeah, um, and that was uh, actually I wrote about it a little bit on uh, on BookRiot.com um, about how the the novelizations and the comics and everything else um, kind of cheated Last Jedi out of a lot of characterization. Yeah, um, and I think that that happened a little bit with Phasma, where it's like, okay, why is she back when mm-hmm. you know? Okay, there she goes again. Um, yeah, you know, maybe. So- we we yeah. kind of we we think so, but we also thought so last time too, you know. So I do kind of like the idea of her showing up in every movie from now on, like just, you know? I mean, inexplicably just showing up. Like they should have just dropped her into solo just because, you know. Oh yeah, and then she gets blown out of an airlock <laughs> yeah. and you know, hangs on. <laughs> like that could just be the running gag, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for coming back week after week. We love having you. We love uh, seeing those numbers grow, grow, grow. If you don't subscribe and have the episodes automatically beamed over to whatever you use to listen to podcasts, why don't you go ahead and hit subscribe? Every week we bring you awesome conversations with awesomely creative people. They're not just authors. They're not just Star Wars. We talk to a ton of different people. We are actually, we've actually passed number two, our 200th episode. Um, 
we have it. It's number 200 is still coming up. Uh, we just had a lot of extra episodes for a while there that are not in the numbering scheme. Um, but uh, we've been doing this for a while. We've got a huge backlog, back catalog, I mean. So uh, go back, check it out, see who there is interesting to you. And let us know if there's somebody specific or some type of specific person uh, that you'd like to see on a future episode. Hit me up on Twitter or, yeah, really just Twitter. Uh, the Roarbots, and you can get the show at The GBB Podcast. And Anthony? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm Sunstreaker84. Um, all of you Transformers G1 head should get that, and if not, shame on you. <laughs> uh, I'm also on TheRoarbots.com, uh, BookRiot.com, GeekDad.com, and you can find me uh, blogging about random tech stuff on the Forbes Technology blog. He's all over the place, people. I am a lot of places. You are a lot of places. Uh, come back next week. We've got another awesome episode. We've got a great, this summer, I've just got a lot of really great conversations lined up. They're all in the can, pretty much, except for a couple. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to share them all with you guys. So thanks for coming back, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.